So for those of you who are uh, into social media, you know that uh, you know most of the content on it is primarily about what users are doing right in the moment, right? But like, you know, what's what's happening right now? What's uh, what are people? Uh, where are they going? What foods are they eating? What milestones are they celebrating? Uh, along with, of course, running commentary on any number of current events. But then all of a sudden, you know, you get one of those uh, flashback pages that pop up in your feed. You know, this blast from the past of uh, this is what you were doing this time last year. Uh, or Here, here's what you wrote five years ago. Here, here's an update you shared from a previous life event. And, and, you know, those kind of posts do a couple of things. But firstly, what they do is they call to mind images uh, and experiences that, you know, in many, in most cases, might have been forgotten to the passage of time. But that's not all they do. Flashbacks like that also invite us to look forward because, uh, you know, your ability to envision the future is strongly influenced by your memory of the past, uh, influenced by what you've learned or how you've grown, whether or not your life has taken a different uh, trajectory than you would have thought. And I say all of that to say that today, of course, the day of Pentecost uh, is exactly that kind of flashback in the life of believers. Uh, a day that kind of weds together past and present and future into one dynamic event. An event that draws on the, the past images and, and experiences of the early Old Testament prophets like Joel who predicted it hundreds of years in advance. But it also captures the, the birthday of the New Testament church when uh, we Christians received and were empowered to carry out the grand assignment of evangelism. And it also propels us into the future by inspiring and encouraging us to continue the kingdom building mission that the men and women of God are supposed to be pursuing uh, in every time and place until Christ returns. And so uh, for the next few minutes, I want to invite you to uh, kind of use your sacred imagination, let's call it, to, to picture this kind of popping up in your timeline feed as I set the scene for today's text. So just, just imagine, uh, it was May the 24th, 33 AD, first century Israel, the city of Jerusalem, where for, for almost two full months now, over the last 50 days, everyone in the city has been talking about this young rabbi from Nazareth who had been crucified. And they whispered and, and chattered about how the leaders of Israel and the Roman authorities had conspired to kill him during the Passover. Some people said this rabbi had been the Messiah. Some people said he was just another troublemaker. Some people said he had risen from the dead and others it was all just a great big hoax. The town, of course, was swelled again as usual with thousands of festival pilgrims gathered to celebrate the Pentecost holiday, and no matter where you turned, someone was talking about this Jesus incident. But above the noise of the streets in a borrowed upper room, the 11 apostles, along with Jesus' mother and some ragtag followers, held their own holiday get-together, spending all that night, the night before, reading and studying Scripture as they waited for the morning to come, the morning of Pentecost, which is where our text picks up today in Acts chapter 2. And just this one time, uh, I'm going to encourage you to follow along on the screen because for, for time's sake, I'm going to be abbreviating it just slightly. So just for today, follow on the screen instead of your Bible. But the scripture tells us when the day 
of Pentecost had fully come, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And then what looked like flames or, or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit, and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them the ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. And they were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. And they stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. And then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about it. These people are not drunk. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel, who told us in the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and church, by this point, the whole, the whole crowd down below them were, were just completely captivated. And, and Peter was just getting started. And he says, as the text continues, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. And now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. And so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. And church, the crowd was so moved by Peter's explanation of their part in Christ's death that the people turned to Peter and they said, what should we do? And the text continues, Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you. And to your children and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. And those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Be to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you so much for this testimony of the first Pentecost day. We ask, Lord, that you would send us that same spirit, that spirit that we seek every time we come to your word, uh, asking you, Lord, to uh, open ears, open eyes, unstop hearts, uh, and speak, Father, the message that you have, because you promised us when your word goes forward that it won't return to you in vain. And so we trust in you, Father, for these next few moments together in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, you know, today, congregations... Uh, all around the world are going to flip open their Bibles to the second chapter of Acts to recount the story of the disciples gathered in that upper room to celebrate the Jewish feast of Pentecost. And how right in, in the midst of their little celebrations, 
sudden rushing wind from heaven interrupted their get-together by depositing tongues of flame uh, on each one and, and doling out languages they hadn't previously learned. And most dramatically of all, dispensing in them the power to preach the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ so that 3,000 that they were baptized and added to the church. And added through a dramatic and startling move of the Holy Spirit so that today we can celebrate those early disciples receiving the supernatural promise of divine power to evangelize so many people from all around the known world. Power that left a dent in the timeline of history that's reverberated all the way down to us here today. Because church, you and I are gathered here together this morning in this room because of what happened at Pentecost in the upper room. And the same Holy Spirit who came to indwell and empower them is the same Spirit who has come to live in our hearts even today. And so, you know, I think the, the better that we understand the Holy Spirit's work at Pentecost, the better we'll be able to relate to him now and to experience uh, his supernatural power in our hearts and in our lives. Now, of course, on the other hand, I realize, um, you know, we reform folk are not known for having the greatest amount of trust in spontaneous and, and spiritual events. In fact, quite to the contrary, uh, we followers of Calvin, along with our conservative Presbyterian brothers and sisters, have earned the dubious nickname of the Frozen Chosen. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, amen. Yeah, leaving one, leaving one writer to quip that we Reformed Protestants usually appear to have not only been washed in the blood, but starched completely stiff in it, too. Uh, but I'll let you in on a little secret which may be one of our best-kept secrets, but Reformed churches actually have a very robust theology of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's important to address because some believers may not understand that in their conversion that God in the person of his Holy Spirit has taken up residence in them. And so instead of you know, living in the Spirit's power and provision, they kind of try to uh, make the best they can of it in their own strength and wait for the day they get to go to heaven. The result of which is usually a dissatisfied life filled with disappointment and doubt in the mercy and providence of God. But you know, when that happens, the problem is not with God, but with an ignorance of the Holy Spirit's presence and guidance in their lives. Because the truth is, you know, everything that we need to live the Christian life has already been sovereignly deposited in us at our conversion. If we're willing to yield ourselves to the Spirit so that he can have us freely draw on the resources of, of that same spirit because at no point brothers and sisters since you've trusted jesus as your savior have you ever been alone or helpless it, even if it maybe feels that way at times he is always present he's always active working in our lives but but then you have to ask if that's the case then what is that we need to know about the holy spirit to live that way so we're going to talk about that today and tops on that list is the fact that the Holy Spirit is God, right? So, so unlike the, the outright heresy of the Jehovah Witnesses and the, the serious error of the Pentecostals and certain other groups that treat the Holy Spirit not as a person, but as a, a force or just as the power of God, we affirm the complete personhood of the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, after all, the Bible says of them that he knows and he wills and he speaks and he teaches, and he intercedes, and he has a mind. Those are all attributes of personhood, in this case, divine personhood. Uh, not, not of a mere force or some kind of you know, Luke Skywalker theology. And not only is the Holy Spirit a person, but he is a personal and equal member of the Trinity. 
The Scots Confession puts it like this, that we confess and acknowledge one God alone distinct in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The, the Helvetic Confession adds, we believe and teach that the same immense one and invisible God is in person inseparably and without confusion distinguished as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you guys remember from two years ago when we went through the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, the question comes, since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And if you remember, the answer to that is, because that is how God has revealed God's self in God's word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. And because the Holy Spirit is a personal member of the Trinity along with the Father and Son, he also has specific work to do. And one of those jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin. That's why it says in John 16, 8, that when, when he, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Because he makes us realize that we're sinners in need of salvation so that we'll repent. And so we'll turn to Christ and receive forgiveness of our sins. And even after our salvation, he continues to convict us when we, when we fail to live as we should by reminding us that continuing to sin no longer fits who we've been made in Christ. And he can do that because the Holy Spirit Church also indwells us. That's why Romans 8, 11 says, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Right? The, the Holy Spirit's an eternal gift sent to live in us, and, and we're under his divine leadership and empowered to do whatever it is he requires us to do. And the reason we can do it is because the Bible says the Holy Spirit also teaches us. That's why John 14, 26, uh, Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things. Because he's God. And God's a teacher that's unsurpassed. And he guides us as we, as we read his word. And he helps us to understand the amazing treasure that God has given us in it as we faithfully study it under his direction. Which leads directly to the next work of the Holy Spirit, which is he reveals truth to us. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, And now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. And what's promised here is divine knowledge. The knowledge that reaches far beyond ourselves in this universe, and it's found in God's word. Uh, and no, we, we may not understand immediately what every passage means. We may not understand exactly how to apply it at first. But if we keep seeking and searching God's word, the Spirit will give us understanding because he's promised to guide us. That's why John 16 13 says, But when the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. Helping us to discern what's, what's genuine and what's trustworthy and guiding us to make right decisions. So instead of you know, getting your advice from other people or worse yet, from Hollywood or from the media. Uh, we should be getting our advice from the Holy Spirit and direction from him. And when we do that, he bears fruit in us, right? It's one of the first Bible verses that the kids learn, right? I'm not, I won't put you on the spot, I promise. But, right, Galatians 5.22, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And, hey, that could be a whole sermon all by itself. But to, suffice it to say just for today that 
that one of the primary purposes of the Holy Spirit coming into a Christian's life is to change that person and to bring out all those fruits of the Spirit. Right? It's the Holy Spirit's job to conform us to the image of Christ, making us like him and those fruits of the, the Spirit are the results of his presence in us and in the life of a Christian. And this is, this is vitally important to understand. If you don't hear anything else I, I say today, please hear this. The Bible makes it very clear that everyone receives the Holy Spirit the moment he or she believes in Jesus Christ. Right? That, that's, that's why you do. It's why in 1 Corinthians 12 says, For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free. We were all given one Spirit to drink. So if you're a Christian, you've already been baptized with the Holy Spirit. So we reject, uh, of course, the teaching of Pentecostalism that thinks... Uh, of the baptism of the Spirit as a, a, a secondary, a separate event marked by ecstatic experiences and personalized prophecies and speaking in tongues. And so, of course, we, we reject, you know, that phenomena of, of gibberish phrases that pass for the genuine article that accompanied the preaching of the early church. Because, you know, the New Testament records incidences like we read of people speaking in tongues. Those tongues mean languages. And when the people spoke those languages which they had never been taught. It was a sign from God that the person speaking the language to others who understood it was speaking God's word. In other words, they were speaking the truth. Uh, however, the, honestly, today is vastly different. Today, when someone claims to be speaking in tongues, it's usually proof of exactly the opposite. Right? I mean, now, of course, you know, we always leave room in our theology that the Holy Spirit can operate any time and any way he chooses as it suits his sovereign purpose. But let's be clear, the original purpose of tongues was to confirm the truth of the word that was being preached. And now that we have the canon of the word completed in the Bible, those tongues are no longer needed. And in fact, if those people really paid attention, the very Bible that was inspired by and through the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 13 says, As for prophecies, they will continue every day in Pentecostal churches. Wait, no, it doesn't say that. No. What does it say? They will pass away. Right. As for tongues, they will what? Yeah. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And church, we have the perfect word of God right here. And it's through that perfect word that the Holy Spirit reminds us of the things we need to know. That's why Jesus said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So remember, even though Jesus' disciples had been with him for three years and, and heard him preach and teach, they only had their imperfect human memories to go on after he was gone. But to teach other people about Jesus, they needed the Holy Spirit to help them really remember. To remember it in, in vital, living, moving detail. And, and even today, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to bring to mind passages that apply to particular things that happen to us in life. And, and the promise is... If we'll be willing to read the Bible, the Spirit will be faithful to empower us to remember it. That's why Acts 1 says you'll receive power that we read this morning when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. And we'll have the strength that enables us to accomplish whatever God has called us to do because he equips us with spiritual gifts. Whatever your particular gift may happen to be. Because there are a variety of gifts with the same Spirit. And so if you know what your gifts are, you are responsible to use them for the benefit of others. And if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, you're responsible to figure out what they are. 
so you can put them to use. But regardless, if you are a Christian, you have gifts, not the least of which church is your salvation and your election unto eternal life. As Ephesians 1 says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. And the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised. And then he's purchased us to be his own people. And he did this so we would praise and glorify him. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, he's our, he's our guarantee, he's our deposit of the inheritance that we have in Christ. And it means that, that although we don't have the full experience of heaven right now, yet through the Holy Spirit, we already have the down payment. That's why Philippians 1 says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. It's like, you know, when you guys move down here, you know, you're, you're up north and get ready to come down. You put a deposit on a house that you intend to buy. And then maybe later you start to get cold feet uh, or you change your mind. You better give it a lot of serious thought because what happens to a deposit you put down if you don't go ahead with the transaction? You lose it, right? But church, the Holy Spirit is our guarantee that God does not intend to change his mind about you and me. Because he's God's seal on us. Or as Ephesians 1 puts it in him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Because right? in ancient times, those, those wax seals you know, were used to authenticate and to show ownership. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit seals us in Christ as children of God who are now under his divine protection. In church, it's a seal that can never be broken. And it's a sign that can't ever go away, just like this precious table that's laid out before us that we're about to go to. Where through the intervention of the Holy Spirit, it becomes, in the words of the Catechism, holy, visible signs and seals appointed of God for this end, that by use thereof we may the more fully declare to us the promise of the gospel. The promise that's for us and for our children that was conceived in the mind of the Father, conceived in the sacrifice of the Son on the cross and graciously applied to you and me by the same Holy Spirit who came as rushing wind and holy fire at Pentecost. Amen? And let's pray together. God, our Father, it's truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper that we're about to go to, Lord, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're asking you, Lord, today by the joy of his resurrection and an expectation of his coming again, that you unite us in your truth and love so that we can confess your name and sit together at one table. And so come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time that eyes may be opened that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.